Thank you. Um, let me grab my water. Less of a, a distraction now than later. Uh, so good morning, everybody. Uh, we are going to be picking back up in our Hebrew series. We've been going through every single week and talking about how Jesus is better. Um, so we're going to be going through Hebrews 9, 1 through 14 this morning. And what's really cool about Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is that it's actually kind of an extension of each other. It picks up where one left off. And so last week, Kelly preached specifically on how Jesus is the better covenant. Uh, and, and so Kelly's main points were that the new covenant is better because it's based off of internal transformation by God instead of the external conformity by man. That is, God takes care of our, of our, um, of our salvation. Under the new covenant, our sin is forgiven and forgotten. And that under the new covenant, it is unbreakable. Our salvation is unbreakable. And I want you guys to keep those points from last week in mind um, because it directly transfers over to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is an extension or one aspect of how the covenant played out for Israel. And <clears throat> what I'd like us to do is understand that there is some extremely important biblical truths. There's some extremely important theology that we need to go through in order for us to grasp the fullness of what God is telling us through this passage. And so today's going to be a little bit like a good hike. How many hikers do I have in here? I have a lot of shy hikers in here. That's like, okay, there you guys go. So what are the aspects of a good hike? You get your heart rate up, you see some good nature, but usually the best hikes end with a gorgeous view, whether it's a waterfall or an outlook, whatever it is, you, if you hike in Yosemite, there's this uh, trail called Vernal Falls Trail, and the last quarter mile is something like a 1,100 foot elevation gain, and it is redonkulous. But you get to the top, and when you go over this crest, the like power of the water from the waterfall, when there's water, that's a caveat there, but when there's water, the, like, the blast of the water just hits you in the face, and there's this refreshment, and you're just like stunned. You're like, this is absolutely amazing. This is beautiful and majestic. And so this morning is going to be a little bit like that, where we got to kind of trudge up the hill a little bit. But when we get there, when we get to this beautiful waterfall, when we get to the glory of what the tabernacle means for us today, um, it is all worth it. So I, I ask you to bear with us as we lay the groundwork um, for this passage. So can I just pray for us really quick? Uh, so Heavenly Father, I thank you. Um, that you give us uh, just a deep, deep well of truth through the gospel, that your word um, speaks to our hearts and divides what is true from untrue, that your kingdom is absolute. And I just ask this morning that you would broaden our, our vision, that you would broaden our eyes of both our mind and our heart this morning to see you in new ways, to take in um, what you are providing for us this morning so that we may better understand the glory of our salvation in Christ. So would you do that work in Jesus' name this morning? Amen. So, um, like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews 9. If you can open up um, your Bibles, we're going to start out and read the first five verses. It should be up on the screen. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, 
which was a golden urn holding in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak we cannot now speak in detail well luckily for us this morning we're going to speak of these things in detail now so the, the problem for us today is that we don't have the same kind of perspective that the original audience of this text would have. When, when they would have heard this text, they would have been reminded of how amazing the tabernacle was for them. Notice how the reader goes through and he's like, this was gilded in gold, this was gilded in gold, this was gilded in gold. Remember the splendor and the majesty of the tabernacle. Remember how it was a reminder of the covenant that I made, reminder of the, the power that I gave Moses with his, his budding uh, staff, all these things. And for the, initial, for the original reader, this would be like, yeah, why are you telling us this? We know how awesome the tabernacle was. Like, we know this. But for us, we don't have that sort of perspective. And so the problem is, is that we get into um, a situation kind of like, um, it, any baseball fans in here? Yeah, Anthony. So what happens when the New York Yankees win the w World Series? Yeah, we don't talk about that. Why? Because they've won 27 championships over the last 115 years or so. It's not that big of a deal. We're like, yeah, yeah, another feather in their cap, whatever. Does anybody know what happened in 2016 in the World Series? The Cubs. Are you guys Cubs fans? No. My, I know You guys are not Cubs fans. It is such a big deal that the Cubs won the World Series because they went 107 years without winning the championship. 107 years. So that when they won, it was a big deal for the city. It was a big deal for the state. I mean, it was, I mean, they, that city just rocked for like a week because they were so excited for their team. And so for us, we need to have this lens of understanding of what has come before. Otherwise, we read it and we're like, yeah, that's just another championship, right? But we need to understand the, the implications of the old tabernacle and what it meant to, to the people of Israel and compared to us so that we may have a full view of what the tabernacle now means. Good? Okay, so I have a visual, because I'm a visual learner. If we can get that picture up on the screen. Um, I'm sorry, this is the highest resolution photo that I could find. Um, but this was the tabernacle. A lot of times we picture the tabernacle as just this like plain Jane, you know, five post little tent with a meager little curtain. And it's something that they just easily picked up and carried throughout the desert. But this was the tabernacle. Um, so what's amazing is that God gave Moses detailed instructions for this, detailed, to the height of the posts, to what the curtains would look like. Even the rings that would hold the posts up, God said how to make them and what to make them out of. So you see there's this outer perimeter, and this is called the outer court of the tabernacle. So this was the area that the common Israelite would be allowed into. And there's this, you can kind of see there's that fire within that outer court, and this was the, the bronze altar where burnt offerings would be made and where some of the sacrifices would happen. We're not going to go into detail today um, because, honestly, you can speak on this stuff for days. Um, but that's where um, the, the normal Israelite would be allowed into. And then we see the actual tent behind there. And so the tent had this front curtain. And when people brought their sacrifices, they would go and they'd make sacrifices at the entrance of the tent. And then the priest would carry out the rest of the duties. And so the priests were allowed into the front section. It's a little hard to tell in the picture, but there's two different sections to this tabernacle. There's the front section, which the text we just read refers to as the holy place. 
And this held uh, a few different mementos that were of spiritual significance to Israel. And behind that, we have the Holy of Holies. And this was separated by a curtain that was gilded in purple and blue and in the finest linen. And this place, the Holy of Holies, you can say almost nobody was allowed into. Once a year, the high priest, uh, which during this time was Aaron, Aaron was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and he would make sacrifice um, to, to cleanse the ark and to make atonement for all of Israel for the year. And so there is this divide. We see um, the outer average person, the holy place, the priest, the most holy place, only the high priest entered. And so this was kind of the area where communal worship took place. Um, if anybody, the Bible actually tells us if anybody did work, if they made a sacrifice outside of the tabernacle and the priests found out, they're actually to excommunicate them. And there are other situations where they're to excommunicate them. God was very serious that this was to be the place where his people were to worship him. And so even in the picture, I don't think this gives us uh, quite a picture of the splendor of the tabernacle. Um, Luckily, as I said, the Bible gives detailed instructions on how to build it, and it tells us um, how much material was gathered to build the tabernacle. And so it's, a, it's in talents, and I converted that over to pounds, which I'm, I'm going to estimate on the low end, okay? I, I'm a numbers guy, and this is where my mind goes. So God told Moses, gather all of Israel, gather the goods we're going to need, we're going to need gold, silver, precious uh, cloth. We're going to need people that are going to work the uh, acacia wood to make the poles, all these things. And in total, they gathered 2,200 pounds of gold, 7,500 pounds of silver, and 5,200 pounds of bronze. Isn't that incredible? These are people that fled from Egypt, and somehow they had all these things on them. I I don't know how that, uh, I mean, God made a way. So then my mind goes, well, you know, that, that's a lot of metal. How much would that cost by today's standard just for the metal alone? Anybody have a guess? Brittany, you're not allowed to guess. Anybody have a guess? Throw it out there. 15 million, Russell? Uh, flip that around. It was about $51 million worth of precious materials in, by today's standard, and that was just the gold alone. And so they sacrificed. They gave all this, all this material. They gave of their time, their well-being, because God demanded that he had a beautiful, luxurious house to dwell in when he was with Israel. Um, so that, that's just a little bit of a picture into what the tabernacle was. And um, what's interesting is, this was, although this was like the central hub for worship, it was really, it radiated out from there. Because what the priests would do every single morning and every single evening is they would offer a burnt offering on that outer bronze altar. And so this aroma, I mean, think of like 24-7 barbecue just coming out from the the outer courtroom. And I love barbecue, but I think I'd probably get sick of it, um, honestly. But there is this constant reminder of Israel of there is a sacrifice being made for your sins. This is the place of worship. As you're going throughout your day and you get that whiff, you're going to remember that there was a bull sacrifice on your behalf. And it was a time for the priests to cleanse themselves before they went about their, their, their duties. And we'll get into that in the, um, briefly in a little bit. Um, we're actually going to get into it right now. I was going to completely skip it. So for the priests, um, they had very, very, very specific rules 
in what they could and couldn't do, do. They had to dress appropriately. They had to wash appropriately. They had to sprinkle blood on themselves appropriately to make themselves holy. They had to not say the wrong things, not do the wrong things. They had to be as perfect as perfect came. And if they messed it up, they had to do everything back over again and do a ritual cleansing for themselves so that all of Israel would not be considered um, unholy or unclean, I should say. Unclean. And it's so serious that God says in Exodus 30, 20, when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water. Why? So that they may not die. They may not die. This was serious business. And it's so serious that Aaron, the chief priest's sons, they actually went in and they used the wrong fire at the wrong time. And it says that God struck them down. The chief priest's sons were struck down. And God informed Moses. He said, take them outside of the city and deal with the bodies. And Moses tells his sons, he goes, don't let a hair be out of place on your body. Don't let there be a wrinkle on your attire because God is serious and I do not want you to die. And so this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the tabernacle. It was a great place of grace for Israel but it was also a place where the reality of their sin came to fruition. Um, so what types of sacrifices were made here? It wasn't just sin offerings, right? We often think that, at least in my, my own knowledge, I used to think that the offerings were just offerings for sin because Leviticus is like, if you do this, do this offering. If you do this, do this offering. But there were sin offerings, guilt offerings, and burnt offerings. And those three were all made... Um, on behalf of the people to atone for sin. But there was also um, the peace offering and grain offerings. And these were offerings that people would bring out of their own heart, out of thanksgiving, out of praise and worship. And so the tabernacle wasn't just a place for people to come and hang their heads and say, I have realized the guilt, but it was a place for people to come and say, I realize my guilt, and also, here is the best grain that I have. Lord, may I worship you. May I be in your presence. So, if you're an Israelite, you probably wake up in the morning, start, start about your day, and go, I think that I am guilty of this sin yesterday. You know, I, I spoke ill about Anthony, and I shouldn't have done that. So before I start anything, I'm going to meander my way over to the, the tabernacle. I'm going to, well, actually, I'll probably meander my way out to the field. I'm going to grab my finest bull, and I'm going to go to the tabernacle because I have guilt that I need to be uh, atoned for. And they'd go, and they'd make atonement, they'd worship, and they'd go about their day. So this was something that was constantly being done. There's constantly being offerings and sacrifices in the tabernacle. So if that's what it was doing, if that's like the, the minutia or like what the tabernacle was, we have to ask, why? what was the purpose? What was the purpose? Well, when God sent Israel out into the desert, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. So this was, first and foremost, the dwelling place of God amongst Israel. It was the inhabitation of the living God amongst his people. It gave Israel a way to be in relationship with God. Before, it was uh, kind of like, okay, where is God? Is he on the move? What's he doing? And God said, no, I will be with you even if in a limited way because of the, the nature of the tabernacle. So it provided an opportunity for them to be in relationship, and it provided um, an opportunity to atone for sin. 
and I'm already taking way too long. I'm, I guess I'm doing Kelly proud. He's going to listen to this and have us speak with me after. So let's continue. If, if we understand the grandeur and the splendor of the tabernacle, let's pick up in verses 6 through 10 and see what the, the writer says from here. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We already spoke about that. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So as amazing as this thing was, as much of a gift as it was to Israel, there were limitations to the tabernacle, as this text says. First and foremost, the high priests only had access to God's presence, and once a year. So God was with them, but they could not physically be in the presence of God, but once a year and one person. It was extremely exclusive and limited. We see that the text says that the old tabernacle didn't cleanse anybody's heart. And I think that from my own experience, it was probably like, like I give the example, oh, you know, I, I sinned yesterday, I must go take this, this bull. I wonder if it became a like a habit. It's like, before I go to bed at night, let me set aside that bull, because I know there's going to be something tomorrow. Like, let me set aside the goat. And it just being something that was like habitual, and you'd go and you'd make the sacrifice, and you might feel good in the moment, because you know that God has done this. You're like, I have been obedient. And so the, the worshiper in Israel might have felt good in the moment, but they'd leave, and they'd feel the same guilt. We know that because they had to do this over and over and over again. The priests had to do the, the burnt offering every single day over and over and over again. Why? Because the guilt was not actually dealt with. It gave momentary satisfaction for what was being done. In Leviticus 5, 17 through 19, it says, If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though uh, they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. They are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the wrong they have committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. It is the guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. See, nothing in here is saying, come to the tabernacle, receive this blessing, receive this, this honor, receive this gift. What they were doing is they were going to the tabernacle and they were paying down a debt they owed to God so that they may worship in freedom. They weren't receiving a gift. They were paying a debt. How different is that from how we live today under the new gospel or the new covenant and the new tabernacle? We now go to Christ and say, I have nothing to offer. And he says, don't worry, I'll give you everything. Amazing. So why would God give Israel this insufficient and what seems like a broken system, right? There's like, if it's lacking, why would God even allow Israel to do this? Why wouldn't he just jump forward or skip ahead? Well, it was, first and foremost, it was a demonstration of God's view of sin. 
You know, I, I, we spoke about what the, the priests had to do in order to be in the presence of God. And in reality, it was like pouring perfume over a burning heap of rubble, over a burning heap of trash. Because God absolutely detests, it is repulsive, it is repugnant to him, sin. He cannot stand sin. And so what God is doing is saying, you are going to be a sinful people, but in my grace, I'm going to give you this system to allow you to not be detestable enough so that you can be in my presence. I am not fully happy because there is still a problem in your heart, but I am allowing you a way out so that I may be your God and you may be my people. So they see how serious God is with sin. People have to physically lay their, um, Leviticus said when people brought their offerings, they brought it to the front of the tent of meeting, meaning the, the tabernacle, and they had to lay their hand on the head of the animal, and then they killed the animal, and then the priest took care of the rest of the ceremony to, to cleanse them. So this is not like, I'm going to drop off my finest goat and tell me what happened later. The people were intimately involved to know that the, the result of sin was death. The result of sin was death. There had to be death to atone for the sin. So, the seriousness was very much conveyed to them. As I said, it was a sign of God's grace. In verse 8, it says, by this, skipping ahead uh, to verse 8, it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. See, this was a stopgap in the narrative of the gospel. This was something that God set forth in order to point Israel that there was something better yet to come. To point Israel to the fact that there was a Messiah that was going to be the perfection of all the things that they were practicing, who was going to both inhabit the earth and perfect all the symbolism that we see in the tabernacle. All the important things that were there, Jesus was to symbolize. And so we ask, why would God give them an imperfect system? It's to prepare the hearts of man, to prepare the hearts of Israel for the coming of a Messiah, so that when Jesus returns, Israel can turn around and say, we tried to do it and we failed. Lord, give us a way to do this. And God says, there is no way, I am the way. There is no way, I am the way. So God is preparing both Israel's hearts and our hearts as we read this story to the fact that there is something greater that we need, that there is no system or set of laws or manner in which we could possibly earn our salvation. All we are doing is throwing perfume on a burning pile of garbage. The Bible says that our rags are filthy to God. Okay? So, the good news of all that is that verse 11 through 14 gives us the flip side. Okay? So we have a, an understanding of the tabernacle and what it means and what it meant for Israel and kind of the, the, the leading implications for what it means for us. Um, and my goodness, time is flying by. Um, re reading verse 11 through 14. Um, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood or goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, the works of the tabernacle were dead. Dead works. 
So, as full of splendor as the old tabernacle was, it was flawed, and we see that Jesus is the better tabernacle. See, our tabernacle is no longer a place, but our tabernacle is a person. Our tabernacle is no longer a place, but a person. Jesus is that tabernacle. And just to highlight a a few key points, if we look at the tabernacle, all the symbolism in it, Jesus accomplishes it all in perfection. So there's the lampstand in the tabernacle that gave the priest light. What is Jesus now? He is the light of the world. He is our light in darkness. He drives out all darkness. There's the table with the manna that represented God's provision for Israel. What is Jesus now? He is our daily bread. He is our sustenance and perfection. We have the altar of incense, which the priest would, would make sacrifices on um, so that there would be a fragrant smell kind of wafting into the holies of holies, kind of appeasing, an appeasing aroma for God's presence. Well, now in Corinthians it says that we carry the aroma of Christ, that we, through Christ, are now a pleasing aroma to God. And there's the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus said, I came so that I might fulfill the law. It is in him and filled completely. Where there are two curtains holding back the population. I know this is cheesy, but Jesus has two arms that are wide open. Two curtains that are closed, and Jesus has two arms that are wide open, beckoning us to the tabernacle, begging us to have relationship with him. So, what are a few of the, the key things that I want you guys to take away from with the tabernacle of Jesus? Well, point one, if you're taking notes, is that the tabernacle of Jesus is everlasting. Verse 11 says that it's not made with hands, that is not of this creation. See, the tabernacle is no longer of this world. Before, our ops team would have quit. Our ops team would have bowed out. They'd be like, I am tired of setting up this tabernacle. I'm tired of taking it down. The pillar of fire moved a quarter mile. A quarter mile. And we had to tear the whole thing down and put the whole thing back up. See, we no longer have to deal with what is earthly. We don't have to do the maintenance. I'm sure they had to be constantly repairing the wooden poles, the curtains. I mean, think about it. They're in the desert. The wind's blowing against all those delicate fabrics. They had to have seamstresses uh, work on it, whatever it may be. We have a tabernacle that is everlasting, that doesn't fade, that doesn't blemish, that is perfect in all righteousness for all time forever. And that is good news. So not only is the tabernacle itself everlasting, but the sacrifice is everlasting. It says that Jesus once and for all entered the holy place, that he offered himself as sacrifice so that we no longer have to. So we see that the tabernacle, we don't have to do anything else as far as sacrificing animals. We don't have to. The blood of Christ is sufficient and complete and paid in full the sins for all eternity. Our tabernacle is everlasting. Excuse me. So the payment is everlasting. Uh, in Leviticus 17 through 11, uh, it says, For the flesh, sorry, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Ah, refreshment. So, what does that mean? Before we are sacrificing animals, 
and all it did was cleanse us externally. See, the wages of sin are death. And the blood of man had to be paid in order to pay for the sins of man. And so God, in His sovereignty, He became man and bore the death that we deserved and paid the sins of man by man, by the blood of man, so that we can no longer say, let me sacrifice this bull, let me sacrifice this dove, because man has paid that death and it is a perfect blood. It is the perfect death of Jesus. And so no other payment needs to be made Our tabernacle is everlasting. So, you know one way I know that the tabernacle is everlasting that I am very grateful for? Uh, Anthony, Mike, Kelly, and I, we do not have to come here every morning and evening and perform a burnt offering ceremony, and we don't have to wear that crazy garb. It was wonderful. You see renderings of it. It's pretty cool. Not my thing. Um, if God called me to wear it, I guess I would. But I'm so thankful we don't have to come here every single morning and evening and offer these sacrifices. I mean, I just picture the priests during that time, they must have just been covered in blood. I mean, read through uh, Exodus 25 through 30 and all of Leviticus, and it's like, sacrifice this person, or this, this person, sorry, sacrifice this animal, not this person. Have grace. Sacrifice this animal, pour this blood here, pour this blood here, sprinkle blood seven times here, sprinkle blood on this person, sprinkle blood on this person. I mean, it was a bloody affair. I am so thankful we don't have to do that. Just a side note. So, moving on. Uh, point number two, the Jesus' tabernacle cleanses our hearts. We're not going to go into this too deep because I feel like we've already kind of belabored this point. But the problem with Israel was that they went... And they had this cleansing, and they'd walk away from the tabernacle and feel just as disgusting as when they walked in. And the problem today is that oftentimes we have the same experience with church, right? We come in on a Sunday, and we think all of our problems are going to be solved, everything's going to be great, and we may have an amazing worship time, we may have an excellent conversation with somebody, and then we leave, and we're like, what happened? What happened? I felt great, and now I feel guilty again. And I want to challenge you this morning to ask and and wrestle with God. Ask Him, am I showing up on Sunday to check a box? Am I showing up on a Sunday simply so that I can do the right thing? Or are you actively pursuing a relationship with Christ? And moreover, are you showing up on Sunday, and is that your only point of connection with the body of Christ and with the Spirit of Christ? Because if, if that's all you're doing, I guarantee you're going to walk out of here and you're just going to feel exactly how you felt. We need to be encountering the living God. We need to be pursuing His heart in all aspects of our life, and especially on Sunday. As amazing as it is to worship together, if we are to do it simply to check a box, it's worthless. So please, please, can we pursue the heart of God when we meet here so that when we walk out of that, those doors, we know that He has transformed something inside of us. We have allowed Him to speak to us in ways that we cannot just brush off of our shoulders, but ways that solidify and sink down and change our hearts and sanctify us to be more like Christ. See, our guilty conscience is dealt with when we understand that the debt was paid and that there's nothing else we need to do. 
There's no need for a guilty conscience anymore. There's no need to approach the tabernacle with shame. So point number three, the tabernacle of Christ is accessible. See, there's no longer a a barrier between us. When Jesus died, we just celebrated Easter, and we even sang a song this morning saying that the veil was torn. That's speaking of that in that picture, that innermost veil that separated the holy from the most holy. That veil was torn in two so that all of humanity had access now to God. That there was nothing else containing God's presence any longer. That He was to go out in the earth and now permeate through His people so that we may be in communion with Him. And the great thing is that the text says that Jesus is now our high priest. Jesus. Before, in Israel, we had a middleman. Right? Humanity had a middleman. It's like uh, Aaron... My high priest, I, I did this or that, helped me to uh, atone for these sins. And most of what was done was done internally to the tabernacle. So we had this middleman. There's this disconnect. But now, now we have Jesus as our high priest, who is a, a direct contact. God himself is our high priest. So all we need to do, we don't need to go through these procedures and um, people any longer, but we say, my God... And there we are. We are in the tabernacle. Say, my king. And we are in his presence. When we worship him, when we cry out to Jesus, we no longer have something in our way, but he is accessible and there for us to delight in. So what that means is that we are free to worship wherever we are. We are free to worship wherever we are. And we are free to worship whomever we are. It doesn't matter. We can worship our king. The people of Israel, before they can worship, they had to do all these things so that they would be right with God, so that they would be cleansed of the the wrath that God had for them. But no longer do we have to do that. We can stand in freedom and worship wherever, whomever, wherever we are. So, these are all great things. We have an imperishable, perfectly accessible tabernacle now that cleanses our hearts. Yeah, you can dance for that. We can get excited. I saw that. So what? (laughs) What's the point? The problem is if we stop there, we are missing the big point of the tabernacle. These are all excellent things, but we are missing the big point if we just stop and say that the tabernacle is everlasting and accessible and cleanses our heart. And I'm going to try to run through these really quick because I, I realize I'm out of, I'm actually not even going to run through them. You guys can go back and read these stories for yourself. But when you look at the narrative of the Bible, when you look at creation, even to now, but specifically through Israel, you see that God has always been about being with his people. God has always been about relationship with those that he loves. We see in the garden, Adam and Eve walk in perfection with God. They mess it up. God didn't say, well, that experiment failed. He sends them out of the garden, and in his grace, he clothes them. Right? We see the covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham, through you, the nations will be born. You will have great blessings because of of your faithfulness. What does Abraham do? He turns around and sleeps with his wife's maidservant, has a child. He tries to speed up the process. God doesn't say, I take it all back. But instead, we see that the nations are birthed out of Abraham. We see that with with Noah and the flood. God still wants to to save humanity, even though he says that all the earth is repugnant 
and evil, right? With Israel, God says, I will be my people, or sorry, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And Israel, we know, does all sorts of stuff to turn their back on God. Moses is gone for just a few days. He comes down, golden calf idol. It's like, what in the world are you doing? Did you not hear when God said that he would be our God and you would be our people? But God doesn't forsake them. He leads them and guides them, and they eventually go through the promised land. See, so we have to understand that the gospel is a story about God meeting people in the gap of constantly pursuing humanity, saying, I will be your God. And us saying, "Uh, that's cool, I don't know about that. And God turning around saying, I will be your God. And humanity turning their back again, and God saying, I will be your God. I'm sorry, I'm getting over being sick, so my voice is cracking. God will be our God. And so that if that is true, why is it important that we have an imperishable, perfect, perfectly accessible tabernacle that cleanses our hearts? It's because it allows us into relationship with Christ. All those things are great because they allow us into relationship with Christ. If they didn't do that, they'd be as, as good as the, the sacrifices in the, the original tabernacle. See, by the blood of Christ, our purpose is fulfilled. Our purpose is to be in relationship with God and bow down and worship Him and serve Him. And it's through His blood that we can do that in perfect relationship. So, let's go back to the picture of the tabernacle. You might be sitting there thinking, that's cool and all, but how do we do this? So, we have this tabernacle. We talked about all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, everything that made it to be glorious and splendid for the house of the Lord. We mentioned that it, w- it took, by today's dollars, $51 million worth of precious metals to make this tabernacle. The crazy thing is, when Jesus died, and that, tr- uh, that uh, curtain, the veil was torn, and the Holy Spirit was loosed on huma- humanity and met with the disciples in the upper room, what happened is that we now become the temple of God. We now become the temple of God. And what God before told Israel, you have to go through all these procedures. I I have it here. I was going to have us flip to it, but you don't have to. So this is, I'm sorry for people listening on the podcast. You can do it at home. Um, This is Exodus 30, or sorry, Exodus 25 to Leviticus, or all through Leviticus, right? These are all procedures in order to make a sanctified temple, in order to make a sanctified tabernacle so that God can rest there. We are now that tabernacle. If you're sitting there saying, what am I worth today? You're worth at least $51 million, my friends. (laughs) Right? This is how God views us. Through the blood of Jesus, now set... Through the blood of Jesus, God now looks at us and says, he or she is worthy. He or she is worthy. He or she is without blemish. This is my dwelling place. This is my house. This is my temple. I will be your God and you will be my people. See, we are, we are now the residents of Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's so beautiful. If we didn't understand what the tabernacle was before, we wouldn't understand the beauty of it now. And it's amazing because the the gospel says that we are now found in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is now found in us. 
And as I was thinking about that, it's like, man, this is this a weird picture that I can't quite get my head around, but I think it points us to how the Trinity works. You know, I, I don't think that in our, in our humanity we can fully comprehend what the, the, the Trinity is and, like, the relationship. It's just, it's otherworldly. But this relationship where we are found in Christ and the Holy Spirit is now found in us, it gives us this tiny glimpse into the beauty of the Trinity. So, I'm going to try to wrap us up here. You guys are doing excellent. What are we to do with this? If the Holy Spirit is now in us, if Jesus is now our, our tabernacle in perfection and holiness, and the Holy Spirit resides in us as a temple, what are we to do with it? Well, it means that we can kick guilt and shame to the curb. That when we feel that, that guilt is in our ear, saying, you can't approach the throne. What are you doing? I know what you did. We can say, no, no, no. I am the living temple of God. Not that that means that we think highly of ourselves, but we know that the Holy Spirit resides in us, and we say, in Jesus' name, guilt be gone. In Jesus' name, fear be gone. Because what guilt says is that you're not good enough to meet with God. And if God is in us, I mean, God is in us. I don't know what else to say. It's like if you were running for president, and they announced that you won the election, and then you continued to go out and campaign and do press conferences and all these things to try to win election. It's like, dude, go, go enjoy the White House. Go do your job. You've won. We've already won. God is in us. See, the gospel calls us to a middle ground between guilt and pride where we allow ourselves to be humbled by God and admit, admit that, yes, we are guilty, but we don't need to walk in that guilt. That yes, we tend to be prideful, but we boast in the glory of our King. Humble yourself to a place like that. So, I want to end us by reading a section um, from Acts 2. And this is what I think our church would look like if we fully reveled in the presence of God. It should be up on the screen. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they had this interaction. They were encountered by the presence of God. And then jumping to verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And I have a typo in my thing. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those, were be, those who were being saved. See, the Acts 2 church, they said, I don't care. I don't care what's going on. God is good and he has met with me. I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship with all I have. We are going to be the community. I don't agree with you. I don't care. You're my brother. 
We're going to worship together. We're going to be in perfect unity. See, they reveled in the presence of God. They were in awe of the presence of God. All that mattered to them was the presence of God. Church, if we are doing anything other than longing for and being in awe of the presence of God, then we are falling way short of the gift of the gospel. It's all about being in the presence of God from the beginning of humanity to when God returns. We have this opportunity now to just cry out wherever we are, whoever we are, wherever we are, I might have repeated that, and be in the presence of God. But there will come a day when Christ returns and we stand in the presence, physical presence of God. When we stand in the fullness of his glory, unashamed, where his glory is so great that we don't need lights, we don't need a sun, his glory is radiant enough to light the streets with golden sunshine. This is our hope. If you're hoping in things, if you're hoping in being a better person, if you're hoping that your 401k is maxed out, all these things are good, but can we hope that we can just stand in awe of the presence of our Lord. The presence is the gift of the gospel. Please, can we revel in the presence of God? Revel in the presence of God. Revel in the presence of God, church. I think that was my last note. I threw them all on the floor. So... Uh, Anthony is going to come up here and, and he's going to help us through communion. But can we just surrender ourselves this morning and say, Lord, there are things that I have been pursuing. There are good gifts that I have made idols and elevated above my desire to be in your presence. Help me to be in awe of your presence this morning. Can I pray really quick before we go into the Lord, we just thank you that, that we can be in your presence. That though we are filthy, though we are filled with sin, though we are repugnant, that Lord, you make us righteous. That by your blood, you help us to be in your presence, to revel in the perfection of who you are, that us as finite beings can be allowed into the presence of the infinite being is miraculous. Lord, you are so wonderful. We worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.